Yo, everybody, welcome to the Ednium Podcast, where we have real conversations with the amazing talent in Denver's backyard to inform the system and change the game for the next generation. I hope you're thriving. Let's go. Number live. Good morning, man. How you living? I'm doing well. How you doing? Doing good. I know you said you were excited about this weather. I am not. You know what I mean? <laughs> I, I got tricked <laughs> these last no. couple of days thinking we're in the clear. I'm just good. It's not snow. Yeah. I, don't, I don't want the snow. We're going to get a couple more. I have a feeling, you know what I'm saying? No. Oh, I'm excited we finally got this cracking. Yeah, um, me too. Tell the world who we're talking to today. Yeah, my name is uh, Dr. Tony Smith. I'm a deputy superintendent at Denver Public Schools, and it, just excited to be here. Love it, man. Love it. How, how long How long have you been with DPS? Because you were here before, right? It was. Uh, I started in DPS when I was, it was like 2001. I left for a total of like four years. So Where'd you go? Uh, first time I went to Adams 14 School District mm. as the executive director of school turnaround and instruction. Okay. And then most recently I left to go be a superintendent of KIPP Texas DFW, which is in mm. Dallas, Texas, right outside of Oak Cliff. Okay. So Redbird, Oak Cliff area. Uh, I had a great time. Spent about two and a half years there. Yeah. And then I came back. Okay. So I, I think this is about my 18th year in Denver Public Schools. Wow. I served as a teacher, um, uh, as a dean, as a administrator, as an AP principal, Regional instructional superintendent. I've done like all the jobs throughout yeah. the district. You climbed, so, you climbed the ranks. It just went through the went through the process. Yeah, I spent the majority of my career in the far northeast. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I've been doing this for a while. Yeah, yeah. What did you always know? Actually, let me back up. Walk me through that journey. I, I guess like coming up, yeah. young before you were Doctor Smith. Yeah. Um, walk me through that journey, and then like, how did you end up in education? Oh, yeah. So I was born on the south side of Chicago, University of Chicago uh, Hospital. Ironically, I was born the same place my dad died, University Mm. of Chicago Hospital. Mm. Um, And so I grew up in the city. My parents are divorced. And so I went between, you know, two homes, two Mm. families, two Christmases. Yeah. Uh, And then my father and I, we moved to Louisiana. And so lived outside of uh, Bossier uh, in Shreveport, Bossier City. Mm -hmm. And so went back and forth found myself in my educational career, like moving. I went to about nine different schools before I graduated high school. Moved to Colorado when I was 14. Uh, Yeah, it was different. It was a culture shock going from Louisiana to Chicago to Louisiana to Chicago to to Colorado. And, you know, I think coming up through my life is, you know, I had a a wonderful set of parents. My dad was my man. My mom, uh, she married a great guy and uh, they had uh, my sister. Have a couple siblings. Um, I can't say that my life was was good nor bad, right? It was it was what it is. I appreciate every 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 relationship I had, every perspective that I gained, uh, and it's made me the man I am here today. But I think it's it's embroiled in uh, I navigate change, and I'm a pretty flexible, dude. Just because I've had to do a lot of different things in my life, and so yeah. I try to see the world from a lot of different places. Living in the South. Living in the city, uh, and then living in Colorado as a as a as a as a black man, as a mixed man, right? So like, yeah. I, I get all different types of perspectives, and yeah. just I live for the story, man. So I got a ton of them. I feel yeah, it. So. And getting into education, I uh, originally remember this conversation like it was yesterday. My mom pulled me aside when I was a sophomore in high school. She said, "What do you want to do with your life?" Hmm. I said, "I don't know." She said, well, do you want to go to college? I said, yeah, that sounds good. Mm-hmm. She said, well, we can't pay for it, so you're going to have to figure out a way. Yep. And she said, the ways that I know is you could go 
get a scholarship for academics, mm-hmm. you can get a scholarship for sports, or you can go to the military and then go to college after. Yeah. I was never a, a bad student, but I don't think I, I was thinking in the, the realms of scholarships for academics. Mm-hmm. I, I didn't want to go to the military because my stepdad was a, he was a military man and he was hard on me at times. I was like, I ain't doing that. <laughs> Uh, and then I, I was like, you know what? I like this game called football. Mm-hmm. And so I just dedicated myself to becoming a better athlete and uh, was fortunate enough to get a, a couple scholarships and uh, graduated from Adams State, had an opportunity to play some football after mm-hmm. college. Um, didn't stick anywhere, but got some chances, some training camps, some mini camps, yep. uh, uh, got some arena opportunities. Uh, and then when it was said and done, it was time to come home and, and like start a life. I was trying mm-hmm. to bridge this this life between still trying out, still trying to make a team. Yeah. And then the realities of like, if you're not drafted, you gotta live a life of 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 grind and hustle. So I needed to get a job and yeah. I went to school. I graduated with a, a degree in education. And so I started teaching. Um and pretty soon like I just loved what I was doing. I was teaching, I was coaching, I was having a good time. Uh and then I was like, you know what, this is what I want to do. And hmm. just said I want to make a difference this way. Yeah. You played for the Colorado Crush. I did. What, what I, was your arena team? Uh, so I played for uh, Wichita Stealth. Okay. And then I had uh, opportunities with the Iowa Barnstormers and then uh, was invited to be a part of the practice squad for the the, the Colorado Crush when yeah. they first started. Yeah. Uh, but didn't That's make, cool. Didn't make the squad. So it was great. I, I played semi-pro football. Uh, I played all types of football throughout my life. And yeah. then as I just got older, I was like, I can't keep doing this, man. <laughs> I got to. I got to do something different. And I now wish, my kids play, so I wish they kept the arena football. That was fun to go to as a kid. Yeah, it's it's a it's a good it's a good sport. Like yeah, they yeah. still have some elements of it, and some teams still exist. You know, I know like the fan control football league. Yeah. Uh, now the XFL is is back up and running. Yeah, I I, saw I that. tell people all the time when I came out of high school, I was actually in their draft process. So really? I, I went to like their combine and everything. All right. Well, I got to ask, what would your uh, nickname on the back of your jersey been? Oh, I don't shit. I don't know. Because <laughs> they had like the He Got Game or something. I remember there being like crazy names on the back yeah, of the jerseys. Watch you know, out. Uh, watch out. Yeah. Would have been watch out. Yeah. I came out of I, that. That was my thing. I was super fast and I hit. Yeah. Right? Like I was super fast and I just didn't, it didn't, I didn't care. It, I just wanted to hit. Mm-hmm. Right. And so it took me a while to grow into that. I remember early in my college career, I was, I used my speed just to get away because I didn't want to get hit. <laughs> yeah. And then later on in my college career, I was like, you know what? Let me start hitting these people because mm. it don't hurt. If yeah. I if I go faster and I go harder, yeah. then it, it just- yeah. It hurts more it, getting hit than man. hitting. Yeah, so, trust me. I know that. I went that route. I feel you, man. There, there's a couple things in that story that I relate to deeply. The the two Christmases, yeah. you know. I ain't going to lie. I kind of enjoyed the two Christmases. I, you know, I liked the little competition that was happening as a, as a kid. But I'll never forget my my schedule. I tell people this all the time because my parents were split. Uh, Mondays, Pops. Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Mom. Thursdays, Dad. Friday, Saturday, Sunday, they switched off. Oh, you yeah. know what I mean? And so I do think that uh, <clears throat> it, like, forced me and required me to, one, be nimble in the way I process, like, day to day. But then, like, I was consistently living in, a, in, like, two different cultures. Yeah. That then branched out to multiple other different cultures. And I think that like had a lot to do with my ability to kind of just like move around as an adult. Yeah. Even though I kind of hated it at the time. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree with that. I think, you know, my dad was a taxi driver in Chicago. So mm-hmm. he worked a lot of nights. I had a stepmom. I got, I got like um, stepbrothers. Yeah. Um, so like I'm the youngest in that side of the family. Mm. Um, and so you you got parents in the same place. I had like prolonged periods of time with like different 
uh, just different. So like I go in the summers or I go over a vacation period for like three months and live with my dad. Huh. And then I would come back to Colorado and go to school yeah. and live with my mom. And then I would go like for a vacation or an extended period of time with my dad. So I was always living in these two back worlds. And forth. Yeah. Two worlds. And, you know, again, I think you, re- you you recognize that it makes you nimble. I think also it like stifles in some respects your ability to connect with people because mm-hmm. as in Colorado, I never spent summers with like a lot of these people. Mm. And then my dad got sick. So my dad, he died of congestive heart failure. And I think that was more difficult because at points and times in my you know, educational career, particularly before I, I graduated high school, he wasn't able to like have me come because he just wasn't able to take care of himself or me. Yeah. And so I'm still a you know, 14, 15 year old kid and you're you're navigating somebody's slow demise from yeah. afar as a kid, right? Yep. And so those pieces hurt too. But I think, you know, just fortunate for the people I had in my life because they always kept me uplifted, told me I could do whatever I wanted to do really like pushed me to be successful mm-hmm. and supported me. Um, and even in my dad being sick, like I talked to my dad every day. Yeah, It wasn't a day that went by uh, from the time I was 14 and in Colorado to the time he died when I was 30 years old yeah. that I did not speak to him Yeah, maybe twice. Yep. Like every day I talked to my dad. That's cool, man. So, I, <clears throat> I was very close to my dad too. Uh, and he, he's still here, but a lot of my childhood was spent with my dad. And I realized how much of a competitive advantage that gave me. Mm-hmm. You feel me? Like, regardless of what was going on, I never had to walk this world without having a father, mm-hmm. you know, that I knew I had an answer to. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, <laughs> I always tell the story around, you know, I had a lot of friends, a lot of my friends, you know, didn't have their dad with them. And so sleepovers and everything, they'd be, we would talk about it. I used to get mad because I always took my dad's side. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? I'd be mad at my pops for something. Like, man, at least you got pops, you know? And, uh, but they would talk about it, man. And they would say, like, you know, the pain. They'd express the pain mm-hmm. of not having it. And I was like, damn. And then it, this interesting thing came to me when I went to DU. And uh, I was in this group project. And I was, you know, with all these rich white kids. You know, I figured they had everything. They mm-hmm. talked about their pool parties and their trip to Cabo or whatever. And they talked about their fathers the same way mm-hmm. that my friends did because um, they weren't there. They were working. You know what I mean? Yeah. And, it was, and so, like, you would see how a lot of the things that even my friends back in the neighborhood would fall into as a result start to peek its head out in college yeah. when these folks got these like, this, like, freedom and this ability and their ability to navigate. The only yeah. difference is they had money. Yeah. You know what I mean? So some of the... Rough edges were smoothed out a little bit. Oh, man. One of the, that reminds me, one of the things that I always could never fathom, being from a divorce household, was the idea that my mom and my dad together take me shopping. Did they? Yeah, they never did. I never experienced like my mother and oh. father being in the same place, taking me to yeah. go back to school shopping or taking me to go uh, grocery shopping. Like I never had that opportunity. Hmm. I did some things with my stepdad and my mom together, but if you think about the two people who brought you into this world- yeah. And, and you are part of, like, I never experienced them in the same place. So when mm-hmm. you think about, like, marriage, yep. how that manifests in your idea of, like, what a healthy relationship is or what a healthy marriage is mm-hmm. or how you rear and raise your own kids. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm extremely uh, fortunate to have, like, my wife, Marcy, who is, that's my rock. And, mm-hmm. like, we do everything with our kids. Like, I, I, I'm able to experience that level because I had to learn it. I had to learn it through yeah. watching it, other people do it. And I had to experience through, you know, trial and error. But, you know, that's the one thing I would say is like not having a mom and dad 
understanding like the nuances of relationships from a male perspective yeah. and not a female perspective all the time and yeah. then having to like navigate this world as a <laughs> as a dad and a, as a husband yep yeah i just remember i couldn't my friends would be like yo my mom and dad are taking me shopping and i'd be like what yeah yeah what, what are you talking about like you go together with your mom and, and your dad, dad? That's true. I never had that experience. And they'd be like, yeah, man, we go and we do this. And I'd be like, wait, slow down. It's like, yo, yo, tell me how this works, man. Like, it just was baffling to me that my friends would be like, yeah, my mom and my dad are taking me. Like, you're not going with your mom? Yeah, yeah. Like, nah, my dad's coming too. Wait, what? What? How Mm -hmm. does that happen? (laughs) It just was such an analogous thing for me. And as I I get older and my kids, I do things like that. I just, I, I sit back and chuckle. And again... You know, it's the journey. It's the journey that gets us And you're changing generational cycles, you know what I'm saying? Like, me and my wife had this conversation, too, because my wife doesn't know her father. Like, he was never in. So we had to sit down. I mean, my wife and I had our son at 16 Mm -hmm. in high school. And uh, we realized, like, man, we had to figure out what it meant to be a family. Uh Because I never had that, like, cornucleus family. You know what I mean? Yeah. And a lot of kids don't that that we're dealing with. And so, like, there's a lot of, like, more subtle things that I think we miss when we're kind of aggregating people's experiences. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, when we talk about education and all the stuff that they're bringing with them inside of that classroom, that's not even necessarily just on the economic level, but it's also on the relationship level, the support level, oh, the yeah. hope level, the love level. Yeah. Like, how do you balance all that? And how do you even get into it unless you have like a real meaningful relationship or willing to talk to somebody? Yeah. You know what I mean? Um, and that's why we do these podcasts, right? Yeah. Like. It was always important to me. One thing I found out when I was coming in was like it was very easy to, like I said earlier, like either demonize or idolize people that you don't know. Mm-hmm. You know, people trying to make decisions. Where are they actually coming from? What's their perspective? What are they bringing into this mm-hmm. room in a similar way of how? What is a kid bringing into the room, into the classroom, and how do we serve that person? Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? And I don't know, man. I don't know if we get anywhere with just being angry all day. Um, so like, how do you build relationship is the thing I'm trying to figure out. Yeah. I think um, we just talked about this the other day. I had a conversation with uh, Tiffany Gray's in the Black Family Advisory Council, and she really talked about her desire for schools and parents to have um, better interactions that serve kids, mm-hmm. right? So you think about the Trinity or the, the three-legged stool. You think about the community the school, and the parents. Mm-hmm. Like that's what guides education. And there's factors outside of there, but those are the three main pillars. Yeah. Right? And she talked about how we improved that. And I, I asked a simple question. I said, you know, how many of us have been in a relationship? How many of us are married or mm-hmm. have been in a relationship in the past? And almost everybody has raised their hand. And I said, you know, do did you know when you first met this individual that it was meant to be, and yeah. they, did you get married right then and there? And I, uh, Dr. Will Anderson from DU was there. He goes, nah, it took time. Yeah. So of course, like relationships are products of time. Relationships are byproducts of trust and honesty and vulnerability, mm-hmm. but they're manifested over time because you can't just be your authentic self, right? In one moment, you're, you're a spectrum, you're a continuum of yeah. authenticity, and I have to get to know you and understand you. Yeah. And then that that's in the ideal situation. I think if you bring in any trauma or stigmas to the relationship, we got to get times to work work through that. Yeah. So what does it mean to have a relationship with you that's truly authentic? Yep. And I think that's where we miss in education. Yeah. Um, the opportunities to build a relationship based on who I am versus what you see or what I'm asked to do. Yeah. Um, because there's so many factors that we have to 
include in that. And I also think that in a relationship recognizes the individual, not the the monolith that we seem to times mm-hmm. kind of exist under. Like all black people are the same, or all mm-hmm. Latinx people are the same, or all women are the same, or all men are the same. Yep. We are uh, the sum total of our experiences. And until we get to know that, then we're, we're not trying to build a relationship. We're trying to we're trying to coerce people into thinking the way we do. Mm-hmm. I think from just like protectionist mentality. Yeah, and I'm anti-assimilation. Yeah. Just because you grew up a, a, a certain way, I respect that. Mm-hmm. I appreciate that. I want to learn about that. I want to know about that. Teach me about you. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the meantime, I teach you about me. And then we learn how to coexist. I don't want you to be like me. Yeah, right? yeah. I don't want to be like you. Yeah. I want to be hella honor, boring. I want to I want to honor who I am and the people who got me to this place. And I want to learn about you. Like, tell me about that. You went to DU? That's dope, man. I went to little school. Like, <laughs> what was it like to be a DU? Yeah. Or like, hey man, tell me about the issues you had with your father. Were they the same? Were they different? Yeah. And we find camaraderie and some of our similarities, but we also find connection through some of our differences. Yep. Like, teach me. Uh, did you play basketball? I don't know anything about it. I got no left hand, hmm. right? I played football. This is how my process through football went, yep. right? This is where my time was spent. Yep. And so, like, I, I'm really about understanding and learning the person. And, th- and then on top of that, I think, as we think about education, I really am firmly rooted in, like, who I am. Like, hmm. I spent that time to understand who I am. Mm-hmm. And, again, not everybody's done that. No. Nah. And so... I just had this conversation with a group of people that I work with and they asked, you know, they asked like, who are you at the core? And I, I gave them uh, a quote that says, the, the struggles of change pale in comparison to the pain of regret. Mm. And so I, I want to make sure that I'm living wide open. Like I don't have regrets, yeah. right? And even the things that scare me, I try to attack because I don't want to have regrets. Yeah. And I think about this world of education and why I come to this place and why I push and do the things that I do, not because I want to be the expert or not because I want to run or or, or, or be somebody's boss, mm-hmm. but because it, I don't ever want to live in a world where we said, I thought I could, I wish I could, mm-hmm. I should, I would have. Mm-hmm. Um, because then that regret is like, oh man, we let a whole generation of kids slide because we should have changed something. Yeah. Or we let a whole generation of teachers flounder because we didn't, or we should have done this, but we didn't. Yeah. And so I try to live that way. Yeah. Um, and build relationships based on like we can do anything we put our minds to. We we can be great at any point in time that we choose. Mm-hmm. And it's just about getting to that common understanding of like, this is my expectation for myself, and I'm gonna hold you to that one. Um, and I'm gonna understand like where you're at, so I can help you get to the expectation you hold for yourself. Yeah, but yeah. I believe in your greatness regardless. So, what do you want to change? Everything. Tell me more about that. Yeah, I want to change the fact that kids of color don't have tremendous success as their peers. I want to change the perception of education internally and externally. I want to change the perception of community hmm. uh, around education. I want to. I want to change. People's just interaction with the educational center. Mm. Um, I, when I was a nerdy kid, when I was coming up, I liked to read and I liked to listen to stories. And I remember reading Booker T. Washington up through slavery, and um, particularly from the South perspective, understanding that the community, the black community, used to be really whole. Mm. Mothers, fathers, grandmothers, multi generational, and they used to have a center that said, like, we take care of ourselves, we take care of each other. Mm-hmm. Some way we lost that. Mm. Um, I understand, like as I learned about the, the the Puerto Rican community in Chicago and then the Mexican community in Chicago, I learned about their struggles, right, and mm-hmm. how they have come to rally around particular things. Um, I, that's one part of it. 
I think I also want to see kids access their brilliance and lose their fear. Hmm. Um, we raise kids in this place of compliance and fear. And mm -hmm. if I don't do, I'm not good. Mm -hmm. I want kids to walk into the building and you're a genius from the day you were born to right now. And let's continue to grow your genius. Yeah. Um, math. Mm -hmm. Man, I think about Hispanic kids, particularly Mexican kids and connections that the Aztecs had to math. The, mm -hmm. the Aztecs, Incas, and Mayans had to math. And they don't know the history. They mm -hmm. don't know their connection culturally. They created zero, right? Right? Yeah, it's crazy. I think about the connections to African-American history, but then particularly the contributions of African-Americans throughout the world, but in that African coalition of like knowing our history prior to slavery mm -hmm. and to not accept the dominant narrative based on what people have told us, but go find out who you were. Yeah. Um, understand that, you know, black has been across the world for a lot longer than just coming over here on slave ships, yeah. right? Blacks, in every sense of the word, have had a significant impact on the world today. Yep. I want people to understand that. I want people to understand that whatever they decide to do is okay. They got to be comfortable with it. Hmm. That uh, this 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 ism culture that we have is based off a lack of understanding and confidence in who you are, so you attack other people for being different. Hmm. And like an intentional attack on you not knowing who you are. Like, yeah. That's what it seems like. It was built to make you not have that sense of confidence. Man, that's ego, you know? right? Like yeah. that's that is that is a lack of confidence, but that's also like we talk about it in the social emotional context of like how we 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 address the mental health perspective. I also think about it from the perspective of bringing it back to education. If kids know that they can read and write and access things mm -hmm. that their peers can access, then there's an equality that's born within that. Right, yeah. You can't read on grade. We got to change the narrative that says kids, kids of color are plagued by the the gap. Stop saying that, hmm. because that implies difference. Hmm. We should be saying like, hey, we we want to engage you in education, not yep. what you. We talk about what you can do, not what you can't do. Yeah, yeah. And that's a pervasive narrative across the educational landscape. So yeah, it's hard, but I think those are just some of the things that I want to change. And I think that comes back down to the relationship side, right? Like building that relationship on the end. <clears throat> I thought about this a lot, like. I think about you and, you know, Dr. Marrero and the school board and all the craziness that's happening right now. You know, and I'm hearing communities say, they ain't listening to us, they ain't listening to us, they ain't listening to us. Okay. And then I think about new leadership coming in and, like, they're seeing the related the communities have a long memory. Yeah. You feel what I'm saying? And so they're, they're interacting with the institution of DPS, if this makes sense. With the institution of DPS that's like founded on a, on a, a cracked foundation of trust, if that makes sense. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And so they're going into it knowing that that little logo is, is hurt them, you know? And then you got new wave of leadership. I don't care who it is, right? Name person X. Comes in, might have the same, might have the heart for it, might want to be doing something. Um, comes into the role and is immediately like, being yelled at, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Like you, you held all these things. What what will it take to build better relationship with specifically the minority communities in Denver, particularly the Latino and Black communities in Denver, and the institution that is DPS beyond you and beyond like the current leadership? Like, what yeah. is that going to take to build that reciprocal relationship between the two? Where it's an actual positive working relationship. I mean, some of that is not a popular concept, right? I think not everything that's said is right. 
True. Right? You you hire people to be experts. You don't go into your doctor's office and being like, nah, man, I don't have diabetes. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, your blood sugar says you have diabetes. Mm-hmm. Nah, I don't have diabetes. Yeah. Like, you, don't, you don't go and be like, I want you to say I don't have diabetes. Doctor's <laughs> like, I ain't going to say that because the data is right here. Yeah. Right? And it's not that simple. Obviously, I understand. I think the part of it that I I, I personally push is um, who is DPS? Like, D, you, mm-hmm. people speak about DPS as this nefarious character, mm-hmm. right? This villain sitting behind the, the desk being like, <laughs> I want to I wanna make sure that I'm a, that kid can't do math. That yeah. kid can't do, nah, I'm, not, I'm DPS. I'm going to hold you down, right? <laughs> it's like a villain in a Batman movie. Like, yeah. Batman fights DPS. No, we are all DPS. Hmm. I think people have to take ownership of the part of DPS that they are and what they want to see. And so when I show up every day to listen to the community, it's not that I don't listen to the community. I actually try to do my best to work to a place where we feel like we're all going in a similar direction. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think people have different perspectives. And sometimes they're right, sometimes they're wrong yeah. from my perspective. And sometimes I'm right and sometimes I'm wrong. Hmm. We only get to this place with a civilized dialogue. Yeah. And that's not that's not happening. Yeah. We digress in this place of, like, Facebook angry. Mm-hmm. I call it Facebook mad because if, if you don't like something in DPS, you can go in there and be like, man, this district is doing me dirty. It's back up to that racist tricks, blah, blah, mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. It stops there. You just said your piece, but you're not engaging in a conversation that says, like, here's why I feel this way. Yeah. And let's talk about options. Give me some rationale. Tell me what you think about this. Why is that the best decision? As a parent, here's where I think we need to go. Yeah. And the district has to take ownership of there aren't always those venues because we have 90,000 kids, over 100,000 parents. It's going to be hard for us to engage each and every one. Yeah. It's going to be impossible to engage everybody. But here's the thing. That's why we have school leaders. That's why we have assistant principals, teachers, and we engage them to share a common message and a common vision that we co-create with them. Mm -hmm. So as much as as you say, like, Dr. Morero did this or Tony Smith did this or somebody else did this, here's what I would say. Schools are the unit of change, and we're still living in that. The district is noticing what we need to do from the perspective of like, what is it that we need to change? And we're supporting schools in doing that. It's a collective. It's not an individual mm-hmm. statement. I work with Dr. Morell and do what he asked me to do based on the vision of the board. Mm-hmm. And the board has community input. Mm-hmm. Um, principals work with their communities to say, here's what we need. And we work with principals to say, how can we support you in supporting kids? It is a, it is a collective not, it's a collective, not a hive mind. Mm. And that's a difference that I want to put out there. It's a collective effort, not a hive mind mentality mm. that says everybody got to think like Dr. Morrell. Yeah. Nah, we hire strong leaders to and trust them to do the jobs that they need to do. Some things we have to say, this is what we believe as an organization needs to go forth because the data is bearing out that way. Mm. Right? So if we say, hey, this is what CKLA, the state, the district, um, uh, the communities, the schools say like, hey, the science of reading is where we need to go to improve reading co- scores and outcomes. Yep. So let's just start to, let's, hey, this is why. This is the rationale. Yeah. Let's give us a chance to work through it. Let's iterate and improve it. Let's get better. Yeah. Nobody wants to sit behind a desk and tell people what to do, particularly in education because it impacts so many people. Yeah. No, I feel you on that. I mean, <clears throat> my whole thing, one of my many dadisms uh was uh don't throw don't throw stones unless you're willing to place a brick mm-hmm. right his whole thing was 
Or another way he would say it is, don't talk shit unless you're going to do something about oh, it. Oh, yeah. I didn't, know we, I didn't know we could cuss on here. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was yeah. trying to be as, 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 as nice and as appropriate as possible. Um, but, like, you know, from an Adnium standpoint, too, you know, and I've, me and you have had this conversation of, like, nah, we don't, we don't go out talking about something unless we're really ready and prepared to do something about it and see it through and follow through. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And a point where... I think our conversations start to diverge. It's like, all right, yeah, true. I ain't going to go to the doctor and tell him, no, nah, I don't have diabetes. But that doctor can't tell I have diabetes unless I'm willing to go see him in the first place. Amen. Right? Unless Amen. I tell him, like, I'm dealing with these issues. <clears throat> so on the flip side, it's, <laughs> and this happens to people, right? Yo, I'm feeling this. No, you're not. The data doesn't show you you are. No, mm-hmm. no, nah, nah, but I'm feeling this. Yeah, but you know our test or whatever that we ran mm-hmm. doesn't indicate that. But I'm telling you, I'm feeling this. Mm-hmm. And then what happens? Six months later, come on. Oh yeah, that's cancer. That's mm-hmm. this, this, something that could have been prevented if y'all just heard me. Mm-hmm. You know. And that's where I think that's like the breakdown is happening because yeah. nobody wants to. Because at the same time, a lot of keeping with the doctor analogy, especially black and brown people, we ain't trying to go to the doctor. Yeah. No. Right. So like. Where is that place and how do we start to do that and start to have these conversations before it's, I got a growth or I'm, you know, I'm sick for real, right? Like, how do we have those conversations earlier on in the game that's coming from a trusted place on both sides of, I believe you when you said you're feeling this. Yeah. Let's let's try to diagnose it. And maybe when we diagnose it, I know it's not actually your uh, whatever. It's not actually your leg. It's the fact that your hip's out of place and yeah. that's what's driving the leg thing. But we can't get to that because we're only talking to each other when we're already mad. Man, this is such an appropriate analogy and I'll tell you why. Um, and it's personal to me because uh, I tell people all this all the time. Like I, uh, when I was 30 years old, three, my son was three to five months old, I almost died mm-hmm. uh, working. It was ironic. Mm-hmm. I was working. And so uh, I had been feeling this pain in my chest and it was almost akin to like uh, anxiety. Mm-hmm. So my wife was like, you need to get that checked out. And so I, I let it go. Mm-hmm. Uh, one night I had this just immense pain on my right side, on my lower right side. And it felt like I was having a heart attack. She got really scared. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got a newborn baby. I'm working. Like, I'm just, this is crazy. I got a pain on my side. I mean, to the point, man, where I was on the floor reeling in pain. Mm-hmm. Just like, ah, ah, ah. Did I go to the hospital? No, I didn't. I, I toughed it out because the mechanism that I used was like, I'm a man. I need to be tough. I need to get with this pain. Yeah. And I went to sleep. I, I took a cup of ibuprofen. I mean, when I said I, I was hurting, I was like almost in tears. My wife was scared, so she didn't sleep at all. She just said, like, you got to make an appointment. She wakes up at 8 o'clock in the morning. Well, she gets up and she at 8 o'clock in the morning. She calls. Gets me into the first doctor I can see. <laughs> Sounds like my wife too. Right? So first doctor I can see happened to be at 11.30. I go to this doctor off Alameda mm-hmm. and uh, Havana. Like, it's the Kaiser. Yep. Doctor comes in, to your point, which resonates with me, he said, what's going on? I said, man, I get this, like, anxiety type feeling. My chest kind of flutters. Um, and last night I had a real significant pain on my side. It was, like, right here. Mm-hmm. He's like, pee in the cup. Let's check your kidneys. Let me take a little... Uh, blood, like, let me check you out. You're fine. Mm-hmm. I said, man, but I, I don't know what it is. He said, well, maybe you just suffer from anxiety. Let me give you Prozac. Yep. I'm, I'm accelerate the story. I didn't take the Prozac. I said, hey, man, I, I don't, I don't, I feel good about who I am, and like, I don't feel like that's the issue. Something going on with me. He said, let me run this last test. We'll see what happens. He said, sitting there, it's about forty five minute test. 
So again, rolling on to the the continuing on the analogy, like black and brown people, we don't go to the doctor. I'm sitting in this office and about 30 minutes pass. And I say, hey, I'm fine, man. It's just in my mm-hmm. mind. I'm not being tough. Mm-hmm. I then leave. I'm driving back to work. This is when I worked at Montbello or at MLK. And uh, Dr. calls me and said, uh, Mr. Smith, you left the lobby. Where are you at right now? I said, I'm, uh, I'm driving back to work. He said, I need you to pull over right now, sir. I said, well, he said, why? He said, well, the test came back. We did a D-dimer on you. Test came back positive. You had blood clots somewhere in your body. Mm. That can stop your heart in an instant or give you a stroke. You, you're a danger not only to yourself but other people. Yeah. You need to stop or go to the nearest emergency room. Stop where you are. We'll send an ambulance to go get you. Now, again, to your analogy, we don't listen. Mm-hmm. I drove myself to, uh, to the hospital, St. Joe's at the time. Ended up having four blood clots in my lungs. One, Damn. two, three, four, pulmonary embolisms at 30. If I'd have let it ride out, it would have killed me. Yeah. So I ended up going into the hospital. I had to stay about three days, having my young son come in and having an opportunity to think about this. And this is why I use this analogy so much. Mm-hmm. It wasn't the fact that I went to the doctor. It wasn't the fact that the doctor told me he didn't know what's going on. It's because I didn't have a relationship with my doctor yeah. because I only went when I was pissed off or I was hurt. <laughs> so when do we get people in the building when they pissed, pissed off, off, when they hurt. son didn't get what they wanted, when their daughter got held accountable, when yeah. something didn't go right, or you don't like what's happening, that's when we show up to the doctor. Yep. That's when we show up and say like, fix me. Yeah. And the doctor says, I don't have a relationship with you. I don't know you. I haven't. This is the first mm-hmm. time I've had an opportunity to really connect with you, mm-hmm. right? Or you go to a different doctor. Get a second opinion. All the things in this medical analogy apply that they really on do. so many different levels. Mm-hmm. And at the core of it is, as a doctor, I need to be able to listen to you and see and hear and build a relationship to say, like, I get how you work. Yeah. And as a patient, I need to be able to trust my doctor to say, like, my doctor has gone to school, has his expertise, have have. Have have has has demonstrated efficacy, mm-hmm. and I need to trust that the more I learn this person, the better they can treat me and help me help yeah. myself. Yeah, because again, a majority of medicine is reactive. We're living in a reactive state. Proactivity dictates that we get in there and have conversations, and we have these interactions and say like, "Hey, doc, I'm here for my my checkup. Hey, you got a little chubby, Tony. Mm-hmm. Right? What are you doing? I I don't know. I've been working out. Get your behind in the gym. Yeah. Right. Go for a walk every once yeah. in a while." Stop drinking Coke, right? Like, <laughs> lay, lay off the, the donuts. Yeah. If you have an ongoing relationship with your doctor, then the feedback you get is more palatable yep. instead of reactive and emergent. Yeah. And then just one last thing on to not to belabor the analogy, but you said, yo, I got a pain in my chest and in my side. It ended up being your lungs, mm-hmm. right? So, like, sometimes what's going on manifests itself. The symptom manifests itself in somewhere where we don't even really know how to point out what's going on. Yeah. All I know is it hurts in my chest and on my side, mm-hmm. bro. You know? And I think, uh, yeah, that's the perfect analogy. The other part I would say, more more palatable, is Dr. Anderson, DU, uh, he said this. I heard him say this. I, I thought it was more appropriate to where we are now, too, is don't treat the old boo like the, don't treat the new boo like the old boo. Huh. <laughs> right? Yeah. You don't enter relationships saying, like, I'm going to bring all my baggage with me because, again, you with a different person, you're a different person. Yeah. So don't treat Dr. Morrell like you did any other superintendent. Mm-hmm. Take him on his merit. Take him on what he's trying to do. The man shows up. Mm-hmm. He's in communities. He's answering the tough questions. He's trying to be a, uh, he's trying to hear. He went on a 100-day listening session, mm-hmm. 100 days to bring back information and say, here's what I heard the community say. Yeah. Right, so give them an opportunity, right, and just don't deal with them in the emergent or emergency based, excuse me, uh, context. 
he wants to hear. Mm-hmm. And when we're doing things, he's making sure, like, did you ask the community that? Did, mm-hmm. Is this what you think? Like, mm-hmm. Let's talk to principals. Let's talk to teachers. He's trying to emphasize that. But again, if we're always reactive, like, you didn't ask the community, we may not have asked you personally. That mm-hmm. doesn't mean we didn't ask the community. Yeah. And again, we, you may not agree personally with what we're doing. Doesn't mean we didn't listen to you. Because hmm. a community is a diaspora, right? We get connected to this place of one person speaks for the entire community. Yeah, That's crazy, man. Come on yeah. now. People ask me sometimes, like, well, what do alumni think? I, was like, I could tell you the 10 alumni I talk to you what they think, but I can't speak for everybody. Yeah. And anybody that does say that is being disingenuous. You know what I mean? Um, but how do you then communicate how do you show that that's what you heard? You feel what I'm saying? Because yeah. it's real easy to be like, oh, yeah, well, you talked to the people that you wanted to talk to that would agree with you. you yeah. know, we could go down a ton of rabbit holes. But, like, how does how can, how can the district say, like, look, here's specifically what we heard. Here's what we took from it. We didn't listen to this portion because of this reason. Yeah. And now we're moving forward. And, like, where's the wiggle room to say, and actually I want to ask you this, like, where's the wiggle room to say, like, Yo, we were wrong on this. Yeah. We're doing a course correction, you know, because I uh-huh. do feel from <clears throat> a lot of people, especially the folks that I've been able to sit down with in high level leadership positions, especially at institutions, are like afraid to say, yo, I was wrong here. Now I'm doing this. Yeah. You know, like what does it take to be able to acknowledge or to be able to identify those types of things beyond the relationship early on. Yeah, that's that. That's the the perception is that nobody wants to admit that they're wrong. I think we admit that we're wrong more than not. I think you have to also juxtapose that with like what we inherited versus what we created. Yeah. How long has Dr. Morell been been superintendent? It's been what two years, three years? I've been here a year, yeah. back a year. Yeah. And so, like, what what did we inherit? Yeah. And what do we have to deal with versus what do we create? Yeah. And I think you're getting to a place now where we're starting to create some things. I've been a deputy superintendent technically since June 30th, 2022. Hmm. I'm not even in the role a year. Hmm. How much could I have created? <laughs> You'd be but, talented if you created all these I, problems. I, hey, look, I would be <laughs> writing books and selling seminars on how to get things done. And I also understand that there were some things that in the system that may not be right and may need to change. Uh, and there may be things that are great in the system that need to continue, mm-hmm. but there's also a level of leadership that you can't, again, treat the the, the new boo like the old boo. Yeah, yeah. Like, you can't just say like, oh, man, for example, SROs is a touchy situation, mm-hmm. and, and Dr. Morell made a bold choice to put him back in there, but he inherited that. Mm-hmm. He inherited that safety, that safety policy and hadn't had an opportunity, an unfortunate event occurred that sparks the conversation mm-hmm. now. And now everything that Denver Public Schools is doing is wrong, and there's nobody, you know, the people who don't want to, outside of parents, you know, the people who don't want to lose kids? Mm. Teachers. Mm-hmm. I've lost a student. I've lost kids. And many of us as as educators have, and it's the worst feeling. It is what I can only imagine losing my own kid would be like, mm-hmm. to not see that face again, to not see that person, to not interact with that personality, to watch that beautiful soul not be there anymore is painful. Mm-hmm. Nobody wants kids in our situation to be unsafe. And we, I don't think I could sleep at night if I knew I was responsible for it. And so everybody in that situation, you know, shout out to Tarita Walker, but she is the one that's spearheading and saying, like, I want all 2,500 kids at, at East High School to be safe. And this is an event that, oh, my God, crushes her mm-hmm. more than anybody else. Mm-hmm. And I understand parents are, are, are extremely nervous to send their babies, their prides and joys to the school because of what happened. Mm-hmm. And... 
like we have to work together in this, not in opposition. And what is uh, what is on top of your mind? We have a system and a structure that we got to go through. Everybody said, I've heard this several times, put metal detectors in the school. Mm-hmm. Well, metal detectors you can't buy at Home Depot and you just can't <laughs> go put them up in the store. Like they have to be, there's a process to getting metal detectors in there. We're mm-hmm. not opposed to that. And let's go through the process of finding out what's the right software. Yeah. Right? The events of East were tragic and we are busting our tail to make sure that everything is in place from a safety perspective. But again, it goes back to the reactive nature. This was an event. Yep. Teachers aren't getting shot in our schools every day. It's an unfortunate event that we have to make sure never happens again. Yeah. And we have to audit and assess what we're doing and we have to be thoughtful. Yep. And we have to be well prepared and we have to think through it in a way with the community and with experts that say like, this is actually what changes behavior. This is yeah. an ecosystem of safety that has been shown and proven to keep these events out of your school. Yeah. For us to just throw spaghetti at the wall doesn't help anybody. It makes what have y'all, a lot what have of y'all heard so far? I think we heard a lot of nervousness from parents. We've heard a lot of anxiety, a lot of frustration with the number of events at particular schools, the fear that it'll happen again. We've heard uh, uh, a call for like, why are unsafe kids in our buildings? Um, we've heard the gamut of it. We've heard that we know you're trying to keep our kids safe and we understand this is a difficult thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we've heard that we're not being listened to, mm-hmm. um, but we've also not heard, um, we've heard suggestions of like metal detectors, key police in schools, arm, I mean, it runs the gamut, man. Anything yeah. that you hear in the, in, the, in the context of media, we've heard it all. What are you what, hearing from those experts, though, that you're saying y'all are talking to? Like, what are they saying actually prevents things? Yeah, it's an ecosystem of safety, man. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, it is like a balance between proactive measures, like your school culture. Mm-hmm. You know, Denver Public Schools, has had uh, a lot of success in keeping kids safe because kids own their they own their their space. The number of safe details, the number of kids who have said like, "Hey, I think such and such has something that's unsafe on them." Mm. Um, the number of kids that said like, "I'm not I'm not letting you bring this BS <laughs> to my to my to my classroom." No, mm-hmm. uh, the parents that have been involved to say like, "I think my son or daughter has a has a weapon on them. I can't find my weapon. I think they have it." Mm. Like we've had a tremendous amount of people pitch in and say, like, we want to keep our community safe, yeah. right? We have mental health supports that catch kids in trauma or in incident and say, like, hey, how do we provide you some mental health? Like, yeah. Let's get you through this tough time. Yeah. Um, we have teachers that are actually connecting and building relationships with kids and say, like, yo, you, you, you're better than this. Yeah. We have the police that come around, not in the context of, like, SROs, but they have peers programs at schools to just build relationships. Yeah. We have counselors. Right? We have uh, uh, extracurricular activities that get kids involved. We have internships that give kids jobs. Yeah. Right? There's so there's, a lot of things. There's not like one thing. I think this is the thing that's been making me the most mad and seeing the response to all this because it's not just one thing that's going to be able to get done. Mm-hmm. It's going to solve this thing. We held a conversation um, a couple nights ago around it because this this was the first time, there's two parts of this, but this was the first time that something had happened and people started calling us like, mm-hmm. yo, what should we do? Mm-hmm. And I had to tell them like, yo, I don't, I don't know. You know, like I, I'd be lying to you if I told you, hey, just get on board with this thing and it's gonna solve our problem. So let's, you know, we, the way Adnan works is, all right, cool, let's sit down. Those that y'all wanna talk about this, let's, let's kick it. And the conversation quickly um, was like, well, there was a lot of things that were said in that conversation. Number one was, all right, we recognize that this conversation right now is 
largely being led by white folks. Um, I went to the Capitol today after the, the shooting and it was a lot of white parents there. I didn't see people of color there, or at least parents of color there. So what are we missing when we don't have that side of things? I think there was a frustration around, I, you know, Luis got killed a couple weeks before that. Um, a lot of people saying like, look, our babies are getting killed after school, at the library, all these incidents that happened in Montbello not too long ago, the mm -hmm. stuff that's happening in Southwest Denver. Why are we just now like having an uproar? Like our babies have been dying this entire time. Um, and, you know, the conversation of, okay, well, it didn't happen on school grounds. All right, cool. So then we shouldn't, the district shouldn't worry about this. Like where, where's the conversation there? But all that was underlined by hope and relationship. Mm -hmm. And the asking the question of like, well, what gave you hope? Like a kid don't just wake up one morning and decide he's going to do some crazy shit. Damn. There was a bunch of stuff. And, you know, shout out to Senator Coleman. He was sitting down with me and he uh, <laughs> he showed me a picture of um, Austin Lau. And then he showed me a younger picture of him. And he was like, had it been like 10 years old. And he was holding like this big old fish, you know. And he had a smile on his face. Mm -hmm. And he asked me, he was like, what happened to that kid, man? Like what happened throughout the, all this process that that smile went away, mm -hmm. you know what I mean? And so it's not a, there's no silver bullet. There's stuff that we could do to make people feel, you know, more secure in the immediate term. But like long-term, man, like these relationships, the hope ain't happening. You know, we're, you know, about these school-based design labs that we do in every school that we go to, we talk to a group of students and we ask the same question everywhere. How do you define success? Do you know anybody? you know, from your community that has achieved success as you define it. Mm -hmm. There's one hand in every room that says, oh, I know somebody. It's usually a cousin or an uncle or a family member. And we have one girl straight up say, like, look, man, I don't know if I'm going to be alive at 25. I don't even think that far ahead. Mm -hmm. Where's the hope? How are we facilitating kids to be able to see further into the future? Mm -hmm. um, and then how do you build that, I think you call it an ecosystem of safety, mm -hmm. right? And I think it's correlated to an ecosystem of love, care, and, you know, um, I guess hope mm -hmm. as well, you know? Um, and that's where I feel like is like the root problem of this. And if we, I don't feel like we could get to that point because ain't nobody willing to talk to each other around like what intentional things can we put in place to allow a kid to see that life is bigger than what they're experiencing right now in high school. Yeah. I'll get off my soapbox. I'm curious. I go back to what you said about uh, your experience at DU. Here's the one thing I would say. White, black, Puerto Rican, Jamaican, Haitian, Asian, it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. Bullets don't see color. True. Right? But, man, I grew up in Chicago, Illinois. The number of kids that were shot because a bullet passed through a, a, mm -hmm. a wall and hit somebody. The number of kids I knew that slept in bathtubs so they didn't get killed. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, that's real. And that's not just real in Chicago. I'm sure that's real in, in Colorado. That's real in New York. That's real in LA. Like, that, I think we got to get to this place of like the commonality of a situation. White parents, black parents, any parent doesn't want to see their kid be killed. Yeah. They want to have confidence that their babies are coming home. Mm -hmm. Right? Um, that's where we got to coalesce and, and, and collect that relationship around. Less about who's advocating, more about if I can't be there because my situation doesn't allow me, I need to trust that 
you're parent to parent. You mm. want your kid to come home alive, and these are the things that we're gonna do. Mm-hmm. And so, look, man, like I, my, I send my kids. Like, here's the part that people don't understand. I send my kids to school every day too, mm. and I have the same concerns that you do sending your son to school, mm-hmm. to sending your kids to school. I want my kids to come home, regardless of my position. I'm a parent. We both have that job. Yeah. So let's let's coalesce around the the need to get our babies home. I mean, and then with the with the idea, we collectively have to establish hope, yeah. right? Look, man, I'm not I'm not gonna sit here and tell you like I'm gonna show my age, but I didn't have social media, hmm. I didn't have those pieces, so I didn't have the influences that kids have today, and they have it hard. Mm-hmm. The things that they're bombarded with from an informational standpoint, um, I think about all the research that goes into the the positive and detriments of social media. Right, this, they, I mean, look, they get fed so many narratives that I'm sure that they struggle to know what to believe. And in my conversations with kids, I hear that. Mm-hmm. Right, I think our language has to be one out of saying like, what What are your hopes and dreams? But this is what you can do. We got to paint a picture for kids too. Yeah. I, we can't obfuscate that they they're kids. They are kids. Like yeah. we have an obligation to teach them, to show them, to guide them, to mentor them, to develop them. Mm-hmm. We have an obligation to do that. And so, yes, it's about the question. I don't know what I'm going to be. I don't know if I'm going to be alive at 25. You know what? Let's give you a reason. Let's figure out a way together. Let's build this relationship. Have you met such and such? Mm-hmm. Have you seen this person? And again, demystify social media as to like it is an all or nothing game. It's not a zero-sum game. Yeah. Be okay with failure. Be okay with learning. Be okay with the process. Yeah. Nobody is successful without it. Yep. And so, you know, defining success for an individual, you know what I thought success was when I was 15 years old? I thought it was a hatchback with a booming system, <laughs> right? I thought it was uh, I thought it was a pair of uh, uh, Nikes or K-Swiss at the time. Mm-hmm. I thought it was some sharp crease pants with a with a gold rope, yep. a five-finger ring, yep. right? I thought it was a stereo. <laughs> Mom was a, a pathfinder and a, and a water dispenser in my fridge. Man, come on. <laughs> right? like that, that's what I thought success was back then. Yeah. Now, because of the interactions I've had, because of the growth, because of the process, because of investing in myself and letting others invest in me and learning and building that relationship, success is taking on a whole new meaning. It's not yep. about the monetary pieces. Yep. Success is tied in the ability for me to be a great parent, to do the things in education I said I wanted to do, yeah. right? To be accountable to providing opportunities for kids. Like that's success to me. Let's not discount the journey. Yeah. Kids shouldn't know what they want to do at eight years old. Yeah. I, I personally don't think because they haven't lived enough life to tell you. Mm-hmm. That's like asking, <laughs> that's like asking a, a, a first year, a third grade kid, what's the answer to a trigonometry problem? Mm-hmm. You would hope that they would get it, and some actually, in very rare cases, might get it. Mm-hmm. But they gotta learn it, man. Yeah. So let's not let's not jump to the end. Let's go through the process, and the process only is achieved together. Yeah. And there's some immediate and urgent concerns and needs, and there's some ones that we have to push off and really think through uh, deliberately. So then, where is, I guess, like from a, a perspective of DPS and success, where is DPS's role in all what you just described is necessary for someone to figure that out? And then how do we know if it's working? Yeah. Equity lives in the out- outcomes, right? Mm-hmm. So again, I think this is the part we don't think through is we get so frustrated about the immediate, mm-hmm. we don't see that. Like Dr. Morrell took 100 days to listen to every community, to understand what community wanted, how it was. And they collectively helped us create our strategic roadmap. Mm-hmm. 
which parents said, I'm sick of seeing achievement gaps and mm -hmm. I want my kids to have a passion and purpose in schools or provide opportunities. We need to get them to a place where they thrive and we need to understand like that adults have a great system that'll teach them how to be great educators. And our system is geared to teaching mm -hmm. educators and our, our adult experiences and our student experiences are geared on the systems we create to create great education. Mm -hmm and educational experiences and outcomes. So they have to invest and engage in the system. That's our role. We pay, again, I think about the stool analogy, we're one third of the equation, hmm. right? I, as much as I love your kid, I'm, I can only play my one third, yep. right? And yep. no matter how much I wanna play another part, I'm still the education component. Mm -hmm. And the community, as much as they wanna play the education part, is still the community. Hmm. And the parents, as much as they want to play the community part, are still the parents. And again, it's not an either or, it's how do we work together. Mm -hmm. And again, we're going to disagree, we're going to agree, we're going to come together, we're going to move forward. But again, it's about that relationship. And we have to, and I think in this category, we have to redefine our relationship as one that says, like, yeah, sometimes the district don't get it right. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the district didn't hear. Or sometimes not everybody showed up mm -hmm. to give the message, hmm. right? It, the number of meetings I've been at where there's been more DPS employees than parents. Yeah. And that's not a damnation on the parents. That's not a stab at the parents. Parents working. Mm -hmm. Parents got things to do. They got kids. Yep. Right? Uh, so the district now has to find different ways to engage parents, either virtually, through surveys, through uh, additional opportunities, through being out there. I think mm -hmm. you're hearing from the district, let's figure out different ways. Tell us what you need. Yep. And let's figure out how to make it feasible. Yep. But it's a relationship. It's a relationship. And I think that's what we're trying to do with Adnium, right? Like we're trying to pull together a community that hasn't been pulled together before. Mm -hmm. right? Like nobody, it was crazy to me that like this hadn't been built before. Uh, like, yo, let's go talk to the products of our educational system. Mm -hmm. <laughs> what were you actually prepared for? What weren't you? You know, what thing actually did help you? What didn't help you? Like, where are you at now? How did... You know, how did such and such play a role in this thing? All right, cool. Maybe we could build from there, which mm -hmm. is why we, you know, financial literacy and cultural and ethnic studies were kind of like no-brainers mm -hmm. in, in a lot of cases. Um, and then now us trying to touch this, oh, yeah, okay, we're seeing most of the people that came out that's, you know, achieved success, however they define that, they had somebody that they could look to. You know, they had an example that they could point to. They had somebody that said... Hey, I'm I'm paying attention. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm paying attention when you mess up, and I'm paying attention when you're doing well. And uh, we're realizing that not a lot of the alumni had that. Mm -hmm. You know, um, or I mean, here's where I would push, man. Teachers show up every day, not because uh, they don't want to see kids. I mean, I think there's, you know, for the pre people that do, that don't have that. There's a number of teachers that I know I can point to today that. They got me through. Yeah. Right? I mean, there was always, kids. there's usually that one teacher, that yeah. one counselor, but I'm talking about from like a systemic level, right? And like, I'm going to be real with you. There's a lot of stories of like, yo, this teacher told me I wasn't shit. Yeah. You feel me? Yeah. Like, it, there's no like a uh, blanket statement over not everybody's good collectively or bad collectively. 100%. Um, but whether or not they had that person, you know, mm -hmm. um, made all the difference. Whether mm -hmm. or not they saw somebody that they could aspire to. I don't care if it was... We had an alumni the other night. It was, it was for him. It was Kobe. Mm -hmm. You know, it doesn't matter if it was a celebrity. They had something that they could attach themselves to. Yeah. Um, you know what I think our vision is, and you know this already, is like how do we start to make that not by chance 
and like be intentional about putting people in front of students that come from their community yeah. that have done these different things that they can at least say like, all right, well, he did it. I can do it. You know, let me ask you about the community question, because I yeah. think it's stifling in some respects, because let's think about the African-American population in Denver. It's like, what, 4 percent? Something like that. Yeah. So if I think about like comes from our community, the majority of African-Americans that are in the community, they don't major in education. Mm -hmm. Right. And they're not teachers. True. Right. And so I think the concept is how do we create relationships with kids holistically across the board? Because we're going to get into the space where I don't want to get into the spaces that we can only learn from ourselves. Hmm. Right? And I think we talked about this earlier. Mm -hmm. I'm all for, man, I'm all for diversity in education. I want black teachers, brown teachers, white teachers. I want everybody. But how do we get to a place where if your son goes to a school, you can understand that they're safe psychologically, mm -hmm. physically, and emotionally, and that they're getting that encouragement that they need. Yeah, that's the system because I think some of the factors that we can control is who decides to come, who decides to go. Yeah, right. As much as we, I want alumni to stay and come back and be teachers. Hey, look, I got alumni that went out to be engineers, that went off to be oh, doctors, yeah, for sure. firemen, policemen, yeah. um, and you know they're still a part of their community. And some people have decided to migrate to other communities. The snow that we see right here has forced some people. <laughs> you just to go said to at least it's climates. not snowing, man. <laughs> Um, but, and I, 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 I want to honor the fact that people in Denver have a unique perspective and yeah. they have an obligation to share that perspective. Mm -hmm. And people who are coming from outside of Denver have an obligation to learn that perspective mm -hmm. and provide that perspective, but they're still a part of our community. Mm -hmm. And the community is a rich tapestry, right? Yeah. It's a lot of different things. I think what I've heard and sometimes stalls a conversation is like, we need this to happen. Yep. We do. There needs to be elements mm -hmm. of black teachers teaching black kids. Mm -hmm. And I believe that black leaders need to create opportunities uh, for black teachers and black kids, but I also believe white teachers need to create opportunities for black kids and black teachers. Oh, absolutely. Teachers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Same across the board. Yeah, yeah. It should be a standard that we hold and ourselves. And don't get me wrong. When I say be able to attach himself to, I'm not saying just the educator. Yeah. I'm saying the the kid that's interested in art to know that you can build Hallelujah. a business doing you know, banners and signs or tattoos or whatever the case may be, that just there's something of their interest that they know is attainable for them. Yeah. You feel what I mean? And, and we talked about this, and I think it was probably one of the most enlightening conversations that you brought to me I had to think about, is like alumni saying like what they did and didn't get. And yeah. it's us understanding what's the, how do we have an obligation to talk about the evolution as a district of what is yep. is trending? Because when you and I were in school, I imagine we're, I'm, I'm probably a little bit older than you, but when we were in school, the narrative was like, go to college, go to college, go yeah. to college. Like yeah. the only way, only path to success was college. Yep. And now the narrative is like, nah. <laughs> I mean, you, you can go be an entrepreneur, you can start your own business, but you can also make a, a, a decent living, actually in some cases a better living, uh, through through the trades. You yeah. can be a day trader, you can be an influencer, you can be all these things. Yeah. The path to success is so wide and varied at this point. How do we have an obligation as a district to talk about in conjunction with the community, community being the state and local government, yep. to say this is where the economy is going. These are the things that we need. Because yeah. we're educating kids for jobs that don't ever exist. Uh, 100%. So how yeah. are we creating that business community connection? How are we creating that parent community connection? Say like, hey, what are you doing? Yep. Let's talk about where we can go. Yep. And again, it's, it's about the relationship we have to say like, oh, this doesn't seem like it's going in the right way. Mm -hmm. Not that, oh my God, it's not going in the right way. You suck. It's like, how do we get ahead of it and change it? Yeah. Like, what is it? What does change look like for you in Montbello? What does change look like for you in the Southwest? What does change look like for you? And then let's think about how we can do this collectively. Yeah. Right? 100%. 100%. 100%. I'm excited. I mean, I know we're going through tough times right now. Um, but I hope you see, like, 
how I try to approach and attack these yeah. things. And, and that's really out of a responsibility and obligation and the expectations set on me and Edmund by the people that we're serving. Yeah. You know what I mean? We know we're a component of this. But again, we ain't gonna bring nothing to the table or I don't I don't believe in the reactionary thing. It's like, nah, let's let's build something that can last because it, whatever we build needs to last beyond me and you in these yeah. positions. You know what I mean? And so I don't got the answers, you know, I got more questions, but I appreciate you giving us the time to even sit Here's down. what I would say, though, and the part that I would end with, I, I said, you, you said a statement here that I would disagree with, that you as Ednium, I, I think from what I know about you, you would be doing this if it was Ednium or not. Yeah, Because it's who you are, yeah. right? I think, I, I tell people all the time, there's a lot of other things I could be doing. I want to do this. This is who I am. Yeah. Um, I think the goal is let's figure out where we go together and go there together. Yep. And again, the best relationships don't always agree. They argue, they fight, mm -hmm. but they come with a common space. Yeah. And I just appreciate and respect the work that y'all doing and the willingness to like jump into this conversation. I know Dr. Morrell sees himself in you. I see myself in you. Yeah. But also, I see the opportunities that we have to impact and change the world, right? Definitely. And it's, if you get an education, I think you understand, you change the world one kid at a time. Because what you impart and how you impact one person that may motivate or demotivate them to go cure cancer, mm. to change, to, to find nuclear fusion, to sustain it, yeah. to, to establish a colony on Mars. Elon Musk was created by somebody, mm. right? Yeah. Jeff Bezos was created by somebody. Robert Smith was created by somebody. Yeah. And there's a multitude of somebodies who will help create and shape the future. Yep. And so, again, the more that we do together and the more that we lean into the fact that, like, I'm not trying to be perfect. The one thing I, I want you to hear, the district isn't trying to be perfect. Hmm. We're trying to get better, and we're trying to get better not because we want to show what we did, because it impacts every single kid out there, impacts our future. Mm -hmm. What kids do here impact my kids. They impact me. They impact my family. Yep. We have an obligation collectively to come together and not treat the new boo like the old <laughs> boo and build a relationship with our doctor yeah. that says, hey, I trust what you're saying. And when you don't trust, let's have that conversation. Yep. Why you say that? Yep. Well, maybe it wasn't. Maybe I didn't see that part. Like, yep. I didn't. I didn't. I didn't know your fingers tingled. Fingers tingled, and that was it. So let, yeah. let, let's build that relationship, and I'm, I'm, I look forward to it with Edna. Absolutely. Let's collectively. Uh, collectively build our health as opposed to just treat sickness. It's so much of an yeah. analogy that, that, that runs true. Yep. Cool, man. I appreciate you. Thank you. I appreciate Thank you, man. You.